When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Fifty years ago this month, in May 1968, students in Paris took to the streets calling for a new kind of revolution. Over the next year or two, there were student uprisings and revolts around the world in many places, but Paris in May 68 was the best one, the only one to move beyond the campus with a general strike involving 10 million workers threatening the political system. Art Goldhammer will comment. Also, Trump versus Europe. He's threatening European banks and industries with sanctions. If they don't cut off trade with Iran, they would be barred from American markets and transactions with American banks. We asked Yanis Varoufakis for his analysis. He's the former finance minister of Greece who led the resistance to European bankers demanding austerity. Now he has co-founded an international grassroots movement that is campaigning for a revival of democracy in Europe. But first, some good news. Progressive and populist victories in Democratic primaries last week in some very different states, Pennsylvania, Nebraska, Idaho, and Oregon. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national political correspondent, and his most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. Hey, it's good to be with you, John. Where should we start? Maybe in Pennsylvania. Trump carried Pennsylvania. We all remember it was a shock. It was a disaster. If Democrats are going to retake the House, they need Pennsylvania. Uh, how did, tell us what happened in Pennsylvania last week. Well, it was a, a pretty remarkable set of results, and um, the Pennsylvania had primaries for a lot of posts, and the important thing to understand about what was going on out there is that uh, they've had a radical redistricting of their congressional districts yes. because the Republicans had gerrymandered things. This was addressed, and so you had a ton of candidates running for uh, U.S. House seats, many of whom have a real chance of winning those seats. And the in a number of the races, very progressive candidates came through. Um, I won't go through all of them, but uh, to give you an example, Scott Wallace, uh, who is running in a seat north of Philadelphia and uh, has been a, really a longtime uh, progressive activist and thinker, uh, is the grandson of former Vice President Henry Wallace. Yes. Uh, was nominated in a in a tough primary. He had to he had to work hard, but he won it. 
several other progressives won primaries in, in races across the state, and, and a number of them could go to Congress. So that's a big deal. Uh, the next big deal, uh, at least I would suggest, is that in the race for lieutenant governor, and uh, in, in Pennsylvania, that's an important office, a, a powerful office, uh, but not obviously as definitional as, as governor. Uh, you had some uh, actually a pretty remarkable result in that uh, a gentleman named uh, John Fetterman uh, was was running. And I don't know the extent to which you're aware of John Fetterman's He's background. The, and John history. Fetterman is the guy from Braddock. You, well, there you go. You know Braddock quite well. Yes. And um, and so he ran for lieutenant governor in that race challenging uh, a somebody who was already in the position and he prevailed and that's that was a pretty remarkable pretty remarkable result by any measure Fetterman was somebody that Bernie Sanders campaigned for in the primary uh, he will be on the statewide ticket and because the governor governor wolf out there a Democratic governor is in pretty good position there's a likelihood that, that Fetterman will become the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania but then here's where it got really interesting. Down ballot, uh, you had a number of candidates running with the support of Democratic Socialists of America, DSA. Now, DSA is a burgeoning group. Uh, it, it's existed for a very long time, going back to, with roots going back to the 70s and, and really developing in the 80s. But since Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, DSA has emerged as a group with a tremendous amount of energy. Its membership has expanded dramatically, and uh, it, it has a lot of young people who've come in, people who are inspired by Bernie Sanders' campaign, people who are sympathetic to the idea of democratic socialism and a more militant politics uh, operating within the Democratic Party. And there were, as I said, four candidates across the state running with DSA backing in, in some key assembly races. And these candidates, all younger women, won. Uh, and in a couple of cases in the Pittsburgh area, they beat veteran Democratic incumbents in the primary running to the left. And uh, in those two Pittsburgh area districts, the young women who were nominated are very likely to go to the legislature. Similarly, in a Philadelphia area district, uh, there's a woman, a former radio reporter who won a primary, uh, a very contested, tough primary, and it's a quite democratic district, so she's likely to go to the legislature. So uh, you have this wave of new, very progressive candidates coming in, uh, all of them uh, having been supported by DSA and, frankly, having a lot of DSA help on the ground. And one more thing about Pennsylvania was the total Democratic vote was very impressive. There were 100,000 more ballots for Democrats than Republicans across the state. The linchpin of Trump's narrow 2016 victory in the state was Erie County. Last week in Erie County, 5,000 more Democrats voted than, than Republicans. That is what it is going to take to bring Pennsylvania uh, back. Uh, very different kind of state, Nebraska. Big surprise mm -hmm. in Nebraska. Let's talk about, well, I, I don't think I've ever said this to you before. Let's talk about Nebraska. Well, that's certainly you're failing, John, uh, because the <laughs> 
Nebraska should be at the center of our discourse on a regular basis. Okay. Just it's at the center of the United States. Well, Nebraska is a very interesting state. It's a, it's a Republican-leaning state, but it has a deep history of uh, you know, old-school populism. Once upon a time, it was a place where you saw kind of lefty farm politics in, yeah. in some parts of it. And, and I think the roots of that still exist out there in a number of ways. But obviously, not a place the Democratic Party's done all that well recently. Uh, there's a, a congressional district in the Omaha area that is uh, the most Democratic district in the state, or generally seen as one that Democrats could win. That's District 2. And you had a really interesting circumstance there. The National Democrats tried really hard, I should say at least establishment Democrats, tried, tried quite hard to get a certain candidate through the primary there, a guy named uh, Brad Ashford, who had you know, a, a track record, had served before, uh, and, and you know, was a, a more centrist candidate. He was challenged in the primary by a woman named Kara Eastman, and she had a lot of activist roots in the district. Um, she had been, you know, certainly more on the left politically, campaigning in favor of, you know, genuine health care reform, workers' rights, a host of other initiatives. And she was backed, you know, by progressive groups. And the assumption, being Nebraska and such, was that, uh, you know, Ashford would have the, the advantage. But to the shock of an awful lot of folks, Kara Eastman won that primary, but, you know, 51-48 roughly. It was not a landslide, but a good solid win. And she'll be on the ballot in November arguing this message that a lot of progressives are arguing across the country. And that is that the way to win is not by, you know, always trying to find the center, you know, moving toward more conservative positions. That the way to win is actually to mobilize a lot of new voters. But you have a potential that you might get a progressive Democrat from Nebraska in Congress. And that, I want to suggest to you, has not happened in, in a bit of a while. And there was another remarkable result in Idaho in the gubernatorial primary. Let's talk about Idaho. Yeah, I think this is one of the most interesting races in the country and one that people should be paying a good deal of attention to. Now, Idaho is a very, very Republican state. And it's a state where Trump ran overwhelmingly uh, well in 2016. So we shouldn't be, have illusions about it. But there was a, a fascinating candidate who stepped up in the primary. Her name is Paulette Jordan. And she is a state legislator up there, uh, 38 years old, Native American, uh, came up in Native American tribal activism and politics and then made the jump to state politics and has really been a, a quite remarkable political figure in that state. She represents North Idaho, up you know, closer to the Canadian border than to Boise. It's an area with a lot of really hard right conservatives, uh, especially the rural areas up there. And she was initially elected to the legislature in the Republican wave year of 2014, beating a Republican incumbent. She was reelected in, again, a rural North Idaho district in 2016, the year of the Trump wave. And in Idaho, there really was a Trump wave, uh, which swept out a number of, of Democrats, but she won. And this year, she decided to run for governor. She had a primary race with 
a very wealthy Democrat who had been the party's candidate for governor four years ago, had a lot of establishment support. She ran a campaign, again, one of these, uh, this new model campaigning uh, that was aimed at getting young people to the polls, diversifying and opening up the electorate, you know, building a bigger, broader coalition, running as a proud progressive, and also speaking to rural areas in not a, a cautious language, speaking as a progressive, as a populist, but saying rural America is not well served by the Republican Party or by conservative policies. And she swept to victory, uh, defeating the previous nominee in the primary uh, and is headed toward, you know, that November ballot. And my argument for our Democratic friends is that they should be paying a lot more attention to uh, states across the country that they haven't paid a lot of attention to and to some of these rising candidates, people like uh, Paulette Jordan, because I think they have figured out how to talk. Uh, to a much broader audience. And instead of uh, saying, oh, the only way Democrats can win is in uh, urban and suburban areas, that uh, the rural areas are, are difficult or even impossible to win, uh, here you have a Native American woman running for statewide office in a very Republican state, arguing, no, the way that, that she's going to be viable, the way that she's going to be you know, a, a strong candidate is with a message that reaches out to urban and rural voters uh, and puts a real emphasis on bringing young people and folks who have been you know, historically pushed to the edges of the process, not welcomed in, saying those days are over, that, that there's a new politics coming that says if, if everybody gets to the polls, if you have a much higher turnout and a turnout of uh, folks who haven't always been empowered, haven't always had all the privileges and advantage. Uh, you can build a new politics in any state, even in Idaho. John Nichols with the good news from political results last week. Read them at thenation.com. John, always great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure. Now it's time to talk with Yanis Varoufakis. He's the former finance minister of Greece who took office in 2015 after five years of debt crisis and economic and social decline had left half the country's young people unemployed. Greece at that point elected the most radical coalition to govern a European country in decades, and Yanis became a European-wide celebrity when he resisted the demands of Europe's bankers for austerity as Greece held out for restructuring its debt. But then the government submitted and Giannis left office. Now he has co-founded an international grassroots movement that is campaigning for the revival of democracy in Europe. He's taught for many years in the United States, Britain, and Australia, and he's currently professor of economics at the University of Athens. He's written many books, most recently Adults in the Room, and Talking to My Daughter About the Economy, or How Capitalism Works and How It Fails. I spoke with him recently in Los Angeles. We all feel there's something the matter here, and most of us would say it's Donald Trump, but you say Trump is only a symptom. A symptom of what? A symptom of the failure of the liberal establishment after the major financial crisis of 2008 to reignite investment in good quality jobs across the West. Not just good quality jobs, but investment more generally in 
fixed capital in things that actually produce stuff. That monumental failure resembles very much the failures of uh, global capitalism and US capitalism after 1929. But at least after 1929, soon after that, you had the New Deal in 1933. We haven't had the New Deal. What we have had instead is the refloating, very effective and brutal refloating of the financial sector through the quantitative easing programs of the various central banks, the money printing of the central banks, that created a semblance of stability and recovery without having created the investment in the things that make people feel that there is a future for them. You uh, met Obama. You talked to Obama. Tell us about that. It was a a very interesting conversation. Um, It began with him inviting me and inciting me to compromise in my dealings with the creditors. Uh, From a sympathetic perspective, he started by saying that I was right, that what we needed to do was indeed a debt restructure and the end of austerity. He himself, when we were elected, the day we were elected or the day after, came out with a a very helpful statement. He said that uh, enough austerity for Greece. Uh, you cannot keep squeezing a population like that. We were overjoyed to hear that. So he, he repeated that, but at the same time he said that he, he, that he thought we should compromise. And I responded by saying, Mr. President, I wake up in the morning and go to bed at night dreaming of compromise, but I'm not going to be compromised on the one thing that matters, as you said, debt restructuring. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and then he tried to, to, to bring me to his experience experience to say, look, when I got elected, I had to drink a glass of political poison by saving the Wall Street bankers. Not not something I wanted to do, but I had to do it. Effectively, he was saying, in the same way he compromised and that he felt helpless, I should also compromise and, and, and water down many of my aspirations. To which I responded and I said, but at least, Mr. President, you had your central bank backing you every step of the way. I did not challenge him. I didn't talk to him about reinstating Larry Summers and Tim Geithner, which I could have done, but it was not my job as a minister of finance of the most bankrupt country that was trying to elicit support from the most powerful politician in the world. Uh, and, and so I tried to flatter him, flatter him by telling him the truth as well, that yes, you compromised and, and you had a lot of constraints you were working under, but you had the Fed backing you every step of the way, whereas I have a central bank that is trying to stab me in the back every step of the way. So I had this interesting conversation, and what transpired in that discussion behind closed doors was that the Obama administration had a very simple position. We were right. They would do nothing to help us because we belonged to the German sphere of influence when it came to finance and economic policy. But they would back us geopolitically um, in the the sense of uh, uh, providing us with an umbrella within NATO in the instability of that part of the world, especially Ukraine, Turkey, Libya, Syria, and so on and so forth. So, effectively, they were washing their hands of us uh, regarding the euro, regarding the relationship with the European Central Bank, as long as we remain within NATO, they wouldn't mind us getting out of the euro. They would not help us not to get out of the euro or get out of the euro, but they would make this clear distinction, American hegemony when it comes to geopolitics, German hegemony when it comes to finance. So Obama wouldn't challenge German hegemony, but Trump 
in the last couple of weeks has directly told Germany that if they don't abide, if they don't join in the new sanctions against Iran, the United States will institute a secondary boycott of German banks and industry. This give you any kind of uh, satisfaction? No, it doesn't. Trump is a smart man. We, you know, the, the Democrats in this country demonize him. He's a demon, but it's not right for the Democrats to, to paint him as a fool. He understands something that is absolutely pertinent. He understands that Germany is very vulnerable because it has a huge surplus, a trade surplus, to the United States and to the rest of the world. And if you have a huge trade surplus, you are susceptible to a trade war. And you've got a lot more to lose from a trade war than somebody who has a deficit. Now, of course, the, uh, the, uh, there may be a mutual disadvantage as a result of this trade war, but the relative costs are much greater for Germany. And he understands that. And he also wants to divide the Europeans. So he's hugging Macron and the French, because the French, as Macron said very recently, they don't have a trade surplus with the United States, so they are not vulnerable the way that Germany is. So what Trump is doing is he's trying out a, a, poly, a, a tactic of shock and awe. Uh, he's trying to shock the Chinese and the, and the Germans, the surplus countries, into feeling completely uncertain and desperate in their dealings with him in order to, at some point, present them with the kind of deal that he wants to present them. The Iran affair has nothing to do with nuclear weapons. It's got nothing to do with even with Israel. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with peace or war in the Middle East, even though it will destabilize the Middle East. It is his way of rubbing Angela Merkel's nose in her own powerlessness. Mm-hmm. Angela Merkel came out and said that she was going to defend the Iran deal, and Europe will not pull away from it just because the United States is. But already, all the corporations, the German corporations that do business in Iran, have already announced, that, and for the French ones, that they're going to pull out because they do not want to lose access to the financial system of the United States and to, the, to, 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 to their business interests. In, uh, in, in America, there are 4,800 German companies doing business in, in, in the United States. So Trump has the carrot and the stick. The carrot is the tax cuts, the corporate tax cuts that he's given them. And the stick is, if you go to Iran, you're not getting them. And Merkel is a a bystander. Suddenly she feels the depth of her irrelevance. And Trump luxuriates in that. You are now setting out on a program, not just for Greece, but for all of Europe, focusing on 2025, the DM25 parties and movements. Tell us about that. Well, DiEM25, the Democracy in Europe movement, was inaugurated in February 2016 in Berlin for a very simple reason. Uh, Those of us who put it together uh, decided that what really matters is a a pan-European answer to the European systemic crisis. We need a systematic European answer. Uh, That's something that has never been tried before. Mm. But the European Commission, the European Parliament, they've all treated the Greek crisis as a Greek crisis, the Italian crisis, never as a European crisis. Uh, so we, we created a pan-European movement. We have tens of thousands of members across Europe, uh, 100,000 members, which is not that much, but it's, it's significant. We have worked for two years to present our uh, economic policy framework, which, which we call the European New Deal. It's, I think it's a very uh, legitimate, moderate, and useful document. 
that changes the policy discussion as to what needs to be done across Europe. Uh, and very recently, we made a very big, took a very important step. We decided that we're going to run in the May 2019 uh, European Parliament election. So we've gone into bed, so to speak, proverbially, with a number of movements and um, like-minded uh, political parties. And we create, DiEM25 has created a transnational political party, which has only been announced very recently. It's called the European Spring. Uh, so let me give you an example. It involves the Generation movement in France, led by Benoit Hamon, the French Greens, uh, RASM, a, a very progressive feminist political party in Poland, the Alternative, the third largest party in, in Denmark. We are setting up, we've set up a new party in Greece, Mera 25, Mera means DiEM in Greek, to, to bring hope back to this devastated country. And I'm leading that party in Greece. In the next few days, we are setting up a new Italian party led by the mayor of Napoli, Luigi de Magistris. We have Livre in Portugal. Uh, we have other parties in Slovenia, in Croatia. This has never happened before. And what is exciting? Is, let me give you uh, just a snippet of that which excites us. Take, for instance, our political program in Greece. It has been voted by all our members across Europe. So you have Germans and French and Irish and British members of DiEM voting for the economic policies that our Greek party is going to pursue in Greece. And we were doing this in all jurisdictions. So it's a, the first proper transnational party, I think, in Europe, probably in the world. And we're going to run in May 2019 with a primary objective of changing the conversation. Tell us a little bit more about the program of this uh, European New Deal. For instance, how does it compare to what Bernie Sanders has been talking about? Brilliantly, it's along the same lines of thinking. We also have a very close connection across the Atlantic because it is crucial that progressives in America and progressives in, the, in Europe coordinate our policies. In, in the United States, you have the privilege and the luxury of having institu federal institutions which can easily enact uh, another new deal. In Europe, we have to simulate those institutions. And this, this has been the technically difficult aspect and what I think is the achievement of the M25 and the European New Deal proposals, how to take existing institutions that are very fragmented and they are not part of a federal system and make them behave as if they are part of a federation. Because unless they do this and we stabilize Europe, there will be no federation in Europe. We will have complete fragmentation and devastation. Well. Good luck in 2019, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Fifty years ago this month, in May 1968, students in Paris took to the streets calling for a new kind of revolution. There were student uprisings and revolts around the world starting in May 68 at Columbia University in the United States, then in London, Rome, and Tokyo. But Paris in May 68 was the best one, the one that moved beyond the campus, threatening the political system with a general strike involving 10 million workers from every segment of French society. For comment, we turn to Art Goldhammer. He writes about French politics and history for The Nation, The American Prospect, and other publications. And he's the translator of more than 130 books from the French, including Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century. He's based at Harvard Center for European Studies, where he chairs the Seminar for Visiting Scholars. Art Goldhammer, welcome. Thanks. I'm glad to be with you. Well, 
how did the French student uprising of May 68 get started, and how did it get so big so fast? Well, the standard story is that it uh, began in March of 1968 at uh, a suburban university just outside of Paris, a place called Nanterre. There had been demonstrations at Nanterre uh, going back to the previous fall, uh, having to do with many things, uh, including uh, the right of uh, men to visit the uh, the women's dormitories on campus. The immediate uh, cause of uh, unrest in, in March was the arrest of uh, some demonstrators at an anti-Vietnam War demonstration outside the American Express office in Paris. That led to uh, a protest uh, on the campus of Nanterre, uh, which was attended by uh, Daniel Cohn-Bendit, later known as Danny the Red, who was well known to the students because he had been one of the leaders of the protest against the uh, the regulations governing the women's dormitories. Uh, and so he's well-known and, and quite a charismatic leader. This demonstration at Nanterre was intended to uh, obtain the release from jail of people who had been arrested at the uh, American Express offices. For the first time, uh, the rector of Nanterre called in the police to clear the campus, and this uh, was generally not done in France. Uh, campuses until that point were seen as uh, refuges, refuges for uh, protest, and uh, police were not supposed to enter. So this police action in Nanterre led the students to move their protest uh, into the center of Paris, to the Sorbonne, uh, where they began to occupy the courtyard, and that uh, provoked a police reaction in Paris, and things grew from there. And how did it happen that French workers, eventually 10 million French workers, uh, joined in with a general strike? Uh, well, that's a, a very interesting story, uh, because uh, the Communist Party, which was in control of one of the major uh, trade unions, the CGT, uh, was not sympathetic to the student strikes initially and uh, tried to restrain workers from going out on strike. Uh, but what happened was that the prime minister was uh, out of the country. The prime minister at the time was uh, Georges Pompidou uh, under President de Gaulle. Pompidou was uh, absent, uh, I believe, in Afghanistan uh, when the first demonstrations at the Sorbonne began. And uh, de Gaulle did not quite know how to respond. Uh, in fact, he sank into a, a deep depression, which continued through much of the month of May. And consequently, there was some confusion on the part of uh, the junior ministers in the government about what to do. At first, they took a hard line, which was encouraged by de Gaulle. But when Pompidou returned from his uh, absence in uh, Afghanistan, he decided to take a, a more conciliatory line, pulled the police out of the Sorbonne and uh, reopened the university. That appeared to uh, everyone in France as a victory for the students. It was the first time that the Gaullist power had uh, shown this kind of weakness. And it was that that encouraged uh, workers, many of them uh, in defiance of their union leadership, to go out on strike or even to occupy their own factories. And that's what uh, blossomed into the uh, vast general strike that you mentioned in the introduction, which eventually saw some 10 million workers uh, stopping work and really bringing the country to a halt. The political climax of all of this came at the end of May when President de Gaulle fled from Paris. At that moment, it looked like this might be a real revolution. How did that happen and how did it end? It 
uh, happened uh, because, as I uh, said a moment ago, de Gaulle had sunk into a depression. He was quite confused about what to do. He knew that using troops against the demonstrators would uh, lead to uh, an armed clash. Many of these uh, students were uh, skilled guerrilla fighters, and there would be blood in the streets. And uh, at that point, uh, things would become uh, completely unpredictable. There is still disagreement about uh, the, what de Gaulle actually intended, whether he was fleeing in the expectation that a revolution is go was going to occur no matter what he did, or whether he was fleeing uh, because uh, he wanted to regroup his forces and perhaps persuade the General Massu, who was in charge of the French military base in Germany, uh, to which he fled, to uh, marshal his forces and actually march on Paris with forces from outside France. In the meantime, the military command had uh, actually recalled some French forces from Eastern Europe, and several tank units were uh, prepared in secret and uh, moved into positions around Paris in case they were needed. De Gaulle had flown in uh, several helicopters with his family and uh, uh, members of his staff to Germany. And uh, when he arrived, uh, General Massu was not at all, all enthusiastic about the idea of uh, invading France with the forces he commanded. And uh, he said to General de Gaulle, uh, according to his own testimony, that by fleeing, de Gaulle would undo what he had done in 10 years of work rebuilding the French uh, Republic from uh, the rubble that had been left by the uh, Algerian War. So Massou persuaded de Gaulle to return, which de Gaulle did. He arrived uh, back in France on May 30th and promptly dissolved the National Assembly, uh, called for new elections. And at this point, uh, public opinion began to change. Until now, public opinion had been uh, fairly sympathetic to the students and the strikers, uh, at least opinion as reflected by the media. But as is often the case in France, what happens in Paris is somewhat misleading. Many of uh, France's uprisings have occurred in Paris, only to discover that uh, support nationwide is not as strong as it seems to be in Paris. Uh, and that's what happened after de Gaulle's return. The pro-Gaullist forces began to discover that they were stronger than uh, they had appeared. There was a, what turned out to be a silent majority out there in the countryside. By the middle of June, there were large anti-uprising demonstrations, pro-Gaullist demonstrations, uh, taking place in Paris. And in the vote that was uh, held uh, toward the end of June, uh, the Gaullist forces won a resounding victory. And the... Uh, the opposition parties were uh, reduced to uh, uh, a shadow of their former strength. Uh, in fact, the uh, opposition parties had not uh, enjoyed much uh, favor from the student protesters or the workers either. Uh, both the socialists and the communists uh, were quite unpopular among the, uh, the demonstrators. So it was not surprising that they did not do well in this election. We need to talk about... What was the spirit of 68? That's sort of what remains is the legacy of Paris in May, particularly the slogans. My favorite was power to the imagination. Yes, there were many great slogans and many great posters that uh, uh, came out of uh, these events. Uh, after the uh, uh, Sorbonne was retaken by the students, the movement really expanded to artists and intellectuals, including the School of uh, Fine Arts, 
where many young artists were recruited into working for the movement. They produced poster after poster. So the walls of Paris were plastered with these posters filled with imaginative uh, slogans promoted by uh, groups like the Situationists and so on. And in some sense, uh, it's that part of the movement that really explains the lasting influence of 1968. We've been talking up till now about movement tactics and political parties yeah. and trade unions, that sort of thing. But what really happened in 1968, I think, was that people discovered what real freedom felt like for the first time uh, and discovered that they had been living in a society that they came to think of as repressive. There was recently a documentary on French TV that was quite wonderful. It had one of um, General de Gaulle's sons, uh, grandsons rather, who described the dinner that he had with his grandfather during the events. De Gaulle asked him what in the world these students wanted, and uh, the grandson said, uh, we want to live free. We, we feel that uh, we've been living in a society that's uh, hyper-constrained by rules, uh, not of our own choosing. And uh, uh, the atmosphere has changed. That was really the spirit of, uh, of 68. Uh, people uh, discovered what it was like to open up, to feel themselves for a period of a few weeks uh, living in a utopian society where people who normally did not speak to one another, students and workers, professors and students, parents and children, uh, found that uh, they had conversations that they had never had before. And that uh, influenced the uh, attitude toward life of, uh, of a whole generation to come. Well, in some of its more crucial aspects, May 68, despite its defeat, was a wild success. The women's movement was launched, galvanized in large part by the male chauvinism of 68's leaders. Protests against yeah. the war in Vietnam played a key role eventually in ending it. Universities were transformed. The environmental movement was born. But but there was also a massive backlash starting in the United States with the election of Nixon in November of 1968. I think a lot of people would say it continued through Reagan and it continues today with Trump, all of whom were enemies of 1968. I looked up where was Trump in May 68. Trump was a business school student at Penn in 1968. He graduated in June, and within a few months, he was riding around Manhattan in his uh, father's limo. Do you think that there is a direct line from the opponents of May 68 down to today? Yes, I do. Uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Certainly, the reaction uh, in the United States and in the UK came earlier than in France. Uh, it was already in place by the 1980s. In France, the the course of reaction was somewhat different because the direct political legacy of 1968 was the uh, rebirth of the Socialist Party uh, under François Mitterrand, which began in 1971 and led to the uh, election of, uh, of Mitterrand uh, as president in, in 1981. So that was the uh, first time that a left-wing government had come to power under the Fifth Republic, the regime uh, instituted in France by de Gaulle. So that delayed the reaction of 1968 for a number of years, and uh, really uh, it be began in a political sense with the election of, of uh, Sarkozy, Nicolas Sarkozy, in 2007. And in some sense, the um, election of... Uh, Emmanuel Macron today is, uh, can be seen as a continuation of the reaction against 1968. 
Uh, Macron, the current president, rejects all aspects of uh, the utopian spirit of uh, 1968 and is a believer in, uh, in reform capitalism. So the liquidation of, of the spirit of 68 took longer in France than uh, it did elsewhere. And uh, I think we see the effects and the differences between uh, French political life today and political life in the U.S. and U.K. Art Goldhammer. Our man on French politics and history. Art, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to you, John. Finally, black women athletes under Jim Crow. That's the subject of this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation. The Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edge of sports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton, Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.